Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. This, this documentary, like in life, is not a simple, easy thing. And this reward of getting to see your film, really appreciate it. That's such a big part of, of being a documentary filmmaker, to, to kind of be privileged enough to see it seen and appreciated and know that it could have impact. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 47. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. One of the earlier episodes that we did here on TDL was a conversation with doc filmmaker and grassroots community expert Lydia B. Smith. I believe it was episode number five. And in the episode, we talked at length about some of our various crowdfunding and marketing strategies, as well as her belief that filmmakers that filmmakers needed to learn how to be able to ask for money for their films. It was a really great conversation. I think maybe only my second shared conversation with the doc industry guest. And I was really drawn by her passion and knowledge for subjects, really, that many of us independent doc filmmakers, well, we know next to little to nothing about. I bring up that conversation that I had with Lydia because recently I've been hearing from listeners of the show a desire for some more content around marketing and distribution for the doc films. And quite frankly, I get it. There's a pretty legitimate need for that kind of information. So I thought I might spend a little time on this subject in our first segment today. So when we come back from a quick break, I'm going to give you five best ways to market and distribute your documentary. And after that, I'll sit down with doc filmmaker Nathan Fitch, who happens to be in the middle of a festival run with his latest doc, Island Soldier, which has its New York premiere at Doc NYC tomorrow, November 11th, which happens to be Veterans Day here in the United States. As of last week, we are happy to announce the Documentary Life Community Facebook group. The Documentary Life Community Facebook group is a place for fellow doc lifers to share valuable information collaborate with other doc filmmakers, and provide others with constructive feedback, advice, and support on documentary-related topics. Furthermore, this is a community where you should feel comfortable sharing the struggles and challenges you face, because as we know from this podcast, there are most likely many others who have already experienced the same thing in the past, or who are currently experiencing it, or who will at some point experience it in the future with with their doc films. Likewise, you should feel comfortable sharing successes or breakthroughs so that others in the community, so that others can learn about what's working for you. This community is all about sharing valuable information in a way that can help others and allow members to garner support when they need it. It's also to help you build and grow your relationships with one another and to build connections and friendships worldwide. If you were a member of the group this past week, you could have been part of an open discussion about more ways to edit your doc efficiently. This was a conversation following on, of course, from last week's podcast episode on on five ways to edit your doc efficiently. Some great suggestions were posted. There was also a section where members introduced themselves and talked a little bit about their own documentary projects. 
It's also worth noting that members Lowland and Carl, they offered up a great suggestion for a future guest, who actually I'm in the process of trying to get on the show. As you can see, less than a weekend, there's already some great networking and sharing of ideas happening. So, so by all means, jump in and join the community today. To be a part of the Documentary Life Community Facebook group, you can search for the Documentary Life Community Facebook, not page, but group, and, and apply from there. I will also be putting a direct link to the show up on our show notes. If you do have any questions or concerns or, or need some additional help with the Documentary Life Community Facebook group, please do not hesitate to reach out to Stephanie, my wife, who's the producer of TDL. And her email address is Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, at barongfilms.com. And Barong Films is B-A-R-A-N-G-F-I-L-M-S. We want this group to be an active and engaged group of documentary filmmakers, both new and old, who want to not only learn from one another, but be contributing to the discussion of documentary filmmaking and documentary living as well. And in order to best do that, we need you, Doc Lifer. So go sign up for this awesome support group today. So you spent a year thinking about and in pre-production on your film, which included, of course, some fundraisers, grant applications, maybe a crowdfunding campaign or two, accruing the right equipment, telling everyone who would listen about your film project. Then you spend the next year and a half filming with your subject or subjects, and then maybe another year and a half or so editing the film, including rough cut screenings, maybe more fundraising, rewriting the whole thing when the early screenings maybe didn't go so well. But finally, after roughly, say, four years, you had a finished film. But then, just when you should have been celebrating this monumental achievement, a single terrible thought happened. Now what? I know the feeling. Other than maybe a premiere in your own hometown, where would you go with the film? Where do you now go with the film? And how do you do it? How would you get it out to the world to actually be seen by more than your family and friends and a few people who, who maybe gave some money during your Kickstarter run? Well, that is what we're going to take a look at today because I don't want you to ever have to experience this feeling. I want you to be jumping up and down all the way to Timbuktu, by the way, a place I've never actually been to. I want you celebrating the completion of your film as well as celebrating the next phase of getting your film out into the world. So in order to help with that, I'm going to offer up five ways to market and distribute your doc film. So let's get started. Number one is figure out your objective for distribution. What's your reasoning for seeking distribution in the first place? I mean, other than just plain wanting your film, of course, to be seen as, as opposed to, to, to on a hard drive and, and collecting dust in the back of your closet for years. Are you going to be distributing the film to be making money? Or are you hoping to at least recoup some, if not all, of costs? I know that just sort of breaking even is often a goal of many doc filmmakers. They don't go into this with the mindset of breaking the bank with their film on saving the spotted owl from certain extinction in the forests of southern Oregon, USA. Perhaps they, you know, maybe a little bit more realistically are, are just hoping to get the film distributed so as to help recoup some of the costs that were incurred during filming. Interestingly enough, I know some filmmakers who actually apply for post-production grants less to pay for the actual post on their film, but more to pay themselves back from all of the credit card debt they'd, they'd accrued during the course of production. Anyhow, a distribution goal of making some monies is not something to feel weird about. I'd say embrace it. Of course, that's only one reason you might be seeking distribution. 
Are you hoping to reach a certain community? Are you hoping to promote some social action? Um, maybe you're hoping to create awareness of a social issue or, or even get the film seen by individuals who could possibly directly af- uh, affect change that, that you're seeking. You know, um, Figuring this sort of thing out before promoting and seeking audiences, it's going to help you figure out the best strategy or path for doing so. And it will give you something to work towards in the distribution process. Number two is figure out who your audience is. This one's a biggie for me, and we talk about it often on the show here. Uh, In fact, as mentioned in the opening of of the program, we talked about this subject with doc filmmaking vet Lydia B. Smith, who who by figuring out who her audience for her film Walking the Camino was, uh, well before filming even began, was able to sow the seeds for what would become a full-scale grassroots crowdfunding campaign on her film which then became a full-scale and tailor-made audience for her film, of which she could take great advantage of when she decided to tour across the USA, in a really sweet motorhome, by the way, and show her films to communities that had long been either um, made aware of or were already actively um, engaged as a part of the grassroots campaign on Walking the Camino. Um, I mentioned the really sweet motorhome. I I think if I'm going back to if if memory serves me correctly, I think I may have posted a picture of of, of that motorhome in the show notes for for I think it was episode five. It's definitely worth checking out. So so back to what we're talking about here. Steph and I we're actually he- we were actually heavily influenced by what you know filmmakers like Lydia had, had been doing this past decade by taking the funding and promotions part of filmmaking into their own hands. When we ran our own uh, Kickstarter campaign for our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia, we did it from Long Beach, California here in the U.S., which it happens to be the biggest Cambodian-American population here in in the country. Um, Cambodian refugees and and, and their interest in the Elvis of Cambodia, uh, it played a huge part in the success of our crowdfunding campaign. And it was from there that we really spread the initial word for about our film and, and really got it into the collective consciousness of, of Cambodian refugees throughout not only communities here in America, but Cambodian communities globally as well, certainly. Remember, by figuring out who your audience is early on, you can start to tailor the content of your social media, um, the story of your film, fundraising strategies, Uh, you can begin to cater to the people who are going to be your audience. But maybe more importantly and deeply, you're actually building your audience with things like social media and crowdfunding campaigns. You're doing that well before your film is even shot, let alone distributed. Now, another something along those lines is number three, which, which is develop your online presence from the start. And you should actually be doing this before you even start, not really from the start. Filming, that is. Following on from figuring out who your audience is before you you begin filming is developing your online presence. This is going to include things like a website for the film, a Facebook page, and this could just be a personal one to start, Uh, a Twitter account maybe for the film, maybe an Instagram account. Um, I I will say a word of caution here. Don't simply go and open up a bunch of social media accounts for your film simply to have, you know, all of the social media media bases covered. If you don't, you know, plan on actually using the the accounts, because if you're not using the accounts, that's as good as telling the world, hello, I'm not actually serious about making this film. Now, 
That doesn't mean that you should be tweeting or blogging about, I don't know, every meal that you have throughout the week or or every thought that you had about the uh, the Newcastle match last night. Um, a little bit of that stuff is good, of course. It, it gives some personality to you. It, it makes you accessible as a human, and people like that. But for the most part, you should be pretty strategic about the type of content that you're posting online. You want to be seen. Yes, of course, that's true. I mean, That is the point of developing an online presence. But you also want to be seen as someone who is in the know about the subject of your film. So pretty regularly, you should be posting content that goes along with you know the subject of your film. For instance, if you're doing a documentary film on, on immigration in the UK, uh, you should be posting news articles on immigration policies. You should be sharing social media of gatherings for immigration community meetups, um, putting up polls on Twitter about the subject, sharing stories about how immigration shapes communities, etc., etc. Again, the idea here is to be seen as someone who not only knows a bit about the subject, but also is passionate about it as well. The more people take in this kind of content on your social media, the more they begin a trust relationship with you. You know, the more they'll naturally gravitate to your sites, which later on, that'll hopefully translate into more people wanting to see your film when it comes out, or maybe even better, setting up screenings for your film in their own communities, or maybe even a step beyond that, taking some kind of social action, you know, if the goal of your film happens to be something like that. Number four, consider an impact producer. This is kind of a newer one. The title's been a bit of a buzzword that's been being used over the past few years, even even closer to a decade, this title of impact producer. Um, I've actually been doing a lot of research on it lately, and I'm kind of getting into it. I'm fascinated by this, by this, by this title. The impact producer is is, is they're basically solely entrenched in that in that world that we're talking all about in this segment, the distribution world and, and the marketing world, and 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 initially their job title it sounds similar to that of the publicist, right? Who yes, their handling of the media relationships in the publicist case is strictly from the the perspective of the media. That is not an impact producer. The impact producer does extensive extensive outreach for your film rather than getting a distributor and relying on them to do this. Um, you would hire an impact producer if you were planning on doing the distribution yourself as opposed to selling it outright to, to maybe a single distributor. He or she will be doing everything in their power and knowledge to get your film to as many audiences as possible, and maybe more appropriately to the kind of audience that's best suited for your film. And even furthermore than that, they're they're trying to create impact with your film, right? So they're trying to get it in front of the eyeballs that uh, that might be able to to move some kind of change towards towards the subject of your film. Um, Brit Doc, who who actually coined the term impact producer, as far as I know, they now run annual impact producer labs. Um, they've even developed something called the Impact Field Guide and Toolkit. I told you I'm, I'm kind of geeking out on this stuff. Um, it, it's basically a, a free download or, or online course about the impact producer process, which includes five parts consisting of an intro, planning, impact and action, impact distribution, and then the evaluation process. Again, it's actually a pretty fascinating thing, and, and and it would be very helpful for you doc lifers to start checking this out, if for no other reason than to arm yourself with some more distribution possibilities. Um, I'll be sure to put a link up uh, to the impact guide up in in the show notes. Other places to find um, 
to find an impact producer might be uh, POV, Fledgling Fund, and, and Tug. And if you're not familiar with e- either of those three organizations, regardless if you're looking for an impact producer or not, you should definitely acquaint yourself with all three. Again, I'll, I'll put links to these guys up in the show notes for this episode. Last thing on on the impact producer, uh, in particular, I also brought this up because I know I know uh, I know for a fact a handful of you who have been writing me um, are operating in sort of the social issue uh, and social impact realms with your films. So an impact producer in particular is something you guys might be interested in further looking into. Last but not least, number five: realize any release conflicts. We all want to be able to release to as many outlets as possible, and and, and rightfully so. You've got a theatrical release to think about, uh, video on demand or VOD outlets, film festivals, um, educational distribution platforms, university screenings, non-official screening tours. There are many, many options nowadays. But before you quickly just try and release to as many of these as possible, it's well worth it to step back for a minute and put together an actual thought-out strategy for this. The reason for this is it's so you don't end up with any conflicts in your scheduling. For one, certain festivals have very strict guidelines as to when and where you show your films. The biggies like Sundance or or Toronto uh, or Rotterdam, they want to be the festival where your film premieres. Imagine if you were actually accepted into one of these big festivals and they found out later on you've already played another competitor or, or that you've been selling the film on VOD already for months. And then they pull the plug on your big festival showing. That's not going to be a good thing. Not to mention you've quite possibly put a distribution deal in jeopardy. Um, the educational market, which is often a biggie for doc filmmakers, they often take a while, so you need to be patient with those guys. And I'm talking like six to nine months you know, before gaining any sort of traction or any kind of meaningful sales. Not only that, but, but educational sales can be pretty strict about your film being distributed in any other form. So you definitely want to be aware of this in case you're looking to go on tour with your film or, or sell via VOD. Release windows and film festivals, they all run in certain cycles. So get yourself familiar with the cycles of these festivals and distribution platforms. Really, if you want to approach your distribution plan in a hybrid way, just make sure you do your due diligence and find out what the various distributors' timings are and what, if any, exclusivity there is. Okay, let's do a quick recap by going back through the five ways to market and distribute your doc film one more time. One, figure out your objective for distribution. Two, figure out who your audience is. Three, develop your online presence right from the start. Four, consider an impact producer. And lastly, five, realize any release conflicts. Now, you guys might have some suggestions of your own about ways in which to, to market and distribute your doc films. And, and, and of course, we would love to hear any and all of them. So consider sending me an email at chris, C-H-R-I-S at barongfilms.com or posting to the new TDL Community Facebook group. And speaking of emails, it's time for the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. This week's Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week comes from a longtime listener and past Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week recipient, I believe. His name is Dean, and Dean's a first-time filmmaker, incidentally also already an active member of the TDL Community Facebook group. And he writes this. 
Hey, Chris, I just listened to episode 46, Epic as Always. I love the part in editing as this is my favorite topic. I love doc filmmaking and looking to explore that more, but doc editing is what I hope to do for the foreseeable future. I wanted to reach out on a few things. One, I have a couple of guests you might consider for post-production. Patty Bird, who is a doc editor from the UK and who has edited for the BBC, Sky TV, National Geographic, and ABC, he has over 20 plus years as an editor and he's a really good teacher. I'm actually taking his creative editing course right now and it's amazing. You can catch Patty at InsideTheEdit.com. Another guest is Alex Ferrari, and many of you probably may know Alex's name. He's also good at post-production as well. You can catch Alex at IndieFilmHustle.com. Also, I personally would like your advice on finding editing work and starting out. I'm looking for paid work, voluntary work, and work to gain experience. Would love your help and advice on this. As always, epic show, keep it up. I think the Facebook community group is going to be amazing too. Thanks, Dean. Well, namaste, Dean. It's great to hear from you again. Some of you Doc Lifers might remember that Dean was getting ready to embark upon his own journey to Nepal. I didn't include that particular email, but I will share that he he did arrive back home in the UK safe and sound, and that his trek to Everest, other than having to deal with the flu in the middle of it, it went well. Anyhow, glad to hear that Nepal went pretty well for you. You mentioned being excited about the last show, in particular the segment that I did on editing. Yeah, I've actually received some pretty favorable response from that episode. Um, I think you guys you guys are digging the editing content and, and are looking for some more. So I will most definitely be looking to bring some more of that, uh, that particular topic to the program. In fact, you also mentioned doc editing vet Patty Bird of Inside the Edit. Well, it just so happens that you're not the only one to have recommended him. A couple of other listeners have as well. And as I always say to you guys, you have a direct influence on the kind of content as well as the type of guests that we have here on the show. And next week will be no different as I'm happy to say that Mr. Bird has agreed to be on the show to talk about editing in the doc industry as well as the online courses that he runs through his company Inside the Edit. So thank you for the suggestion, Dean, and and the other few of you who had written about Patty as a suggestion. And, And I really can't wait to speak with him and share what I learned with everyone. And I'll tell you what, Dean, I'm going to put forth the exact question that you asked me towards the end of your email um, about finding editing work and starting out, whether it be paid work, voluntary work, and, and working to gain experience. I'm going to put this to him, and let's see how he responds to that. I'd imagine he'll have much to say on the subject since this is you know, it's what he's been doing for over 20 years. Let us see, shall we? Thanks again, Dean, for the email and for continuing to be a part of the TDL community. It is much appreciated, my friend. If you too would like to offer up some feedback of your own or maybe give us a topic or, or guest suggestion, we'd love to hear from you. Again, my email address is chris at barongfilms.com and you too could be included in a future Doc Life or Community Question of the Week segment. When we come back, I'm going to share with you a very thoughtful and inspiring conversation that I had with a young man whose experience with the Peace Corps on an island in Micronesia would set the course for what has since become his doc life. My conversation with doc filmmaker Nathan Fitch is up next. I am Chris G. Parkhurst, and this, of course, is The Documentary Life. So you've got a great idea for a documentary film. Awesome. I'd love to hear about it, but I don't have a ton of time. Can you tell me about it in 30 seconds or less? 
Oh, you don't quite have your pitch down yet. Okay, that's fine. What's your website where I can find more information? Maybe a press kit I can take a look at. You don't have one. Well, have you thought about how you might raise some funds to help with the costs of making films? They can be expensive, right? You haven't. Okay, maybe just tell me about your audience. Who's going to want to see your film? Who will you be marketing it to? You don't know this either. Okay, then I'm going to assume you haven't thought about how you'll be getting your film out into the world then, right? I think I see what's going on here. I was once in your shoes. A great idea for a doc. Camera in one hand, a boom mic in the other. But other than that, not much other than a whole lot of excitement and gumption. And that's great. You'll need all of that. But you'll also need a heck of a lot more if you're looking to make the kind of documentary film that you can be proud of. The kind that people will want to see and will impact them. The kind that won't break the bank while you're making it. And dare I say, you might even make some money from. You need support, and we've got you covered. We built the Documentary Academy with you in mind. We've got all the resources you need to make a successful documentary film you can be proud of. Come and enroll at thedocumentarylife.com academy, and let's turn that doc idea into a reality. I have the honor and pleasure to introduce Nathan Fitch, a documentary filmmaker who recently is hitting the festival circuit with his documentary, his latest called Island Soldier. Nathan, welcome to the program. It's good to have you here today. Thank you so much, Chris. It's good to be here. Nathan, what I'd love to do to begin is, is to kind of get an idea a little bit who Nathan Fitch is. Let's let's dig in a little bit into some of your background, how really the idea of documentary work and documentary film, when and how that became a part of your life. So in undergrad, I studied communication arts at a at art school in Los Angeles called Otis College for Art and Design and ended up focusing on illustration primarily and took one photography class. And I think I really enjoyed the photography class, but it was such a small part of that whole experience that it, that I was being pushed in, in different directions and photography didn't, it, it wasn't my focus by any means. Right, uh, right. Right. So, so that was like, I guess my first experience, I have this sort of funny, vivid memory that's coming up. Um, there was a Filipino woman who would cut my hair near the school. And I remember sort of one of my assignments was to document a person and, and going in and photographing her. And uh. um, the, the pictures were not good, but <laughs> but I remember her, you know, opening this book of photographs from, of her family in the Philippines and, you know, just sort of starting to open up her life to me and the, the feeling of kind of intoxication of... Mm sort of learning about someone else. Um, <laughs> but but that was a, a very small thing in college. And then after I finished undergrad, I, to some degree, burned out on sort of doing all-nighters. And it was a pretty intense art school experience. And I'd lived abroad in Sweden toward yeah. the end of college and had an amazing experience and wanted to live abroad mm. for a longer period of time because I felt like the exchange program of six months was long enough to kind of start making friends and start getting into the community and then leaving. So, uh, so I was kind of looking for a way to live abroad for a longer period of time. So then after doing research for a few months, I decided the Peace Corps seemed like a good way to, to live abroad and, and serve uh, and help another community at the same time. I was, I was also interested in sort of community service and I come from like military service has been something in my family. Hmm. This was around the time the war in Iraq was pretty hot and and things were, you know, in Afghanistan and I wasn't 
politically, like the military service wasn't something I was really interested in, in at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peace Corps felt like a way to do something outside of, I, I think living in Sweden, I also had this sense of how inward looking America is. Right, right. You know, and I felt like it would be a good, it was like a moment where I could leave this country and, you know, experience another way of living. So, so yeah, so, so long story short, I, I applied for the Peace Corps and was offered a position in uh, Nepal and, and promptly. Ah, agreed to take I did it. not know that. Yeah, and then by the, no, well, the reason you didn't know it was because it didn't actually, by the time my, my request was, was accepted someone else had taken it and then they were like actually how about Micronesia Um, (laughs) two entirely different (laughs) places on the planet and and cultures yeah so did some research and really you know knew very little about the region and about the the people there before going but kind of approached it as this you know experience it was my idea was to to go and live in different way than I, I was living right and I think in my in my mind at the time that was what that experience was going to be basically the way it worked in terms of assignments they had a list and you could kind of put your priorities and there were I think three historic preservation jobs listed because there's a push in Micronesia to preserve uh, traditional oral histories tr- traditional performances events ar- archaeological sites um, so there, there, there were these three listings and those kind of piqued my interest because it seemed like maybe that would be a way I could use my visual training. Of course, that would be a bit in alignment with, with, with a lot of your, your passion and background, certainly your school training. Yeah, so so I, I was assigned to do hesitation on this, the island of Koshrai. So the hmm. Historic Preservation Office was a small you know, building with, with a few employees and they the person I was sort of paired with Basically, his job was to drive around the island and document different cultural events Amazing. with video, still photography. So basically, for two years, that was, you know, <laughs> my day job, if you, if you want to call it that. You have, like... The, the dream position of Peace Corps. <laughs> you don't often yeah, no. often hear of that being the Peace Corps experience. I love it. No, it was awesome. I mean, I wouldn't. I would never show anyone like the the things I was making. I mean, it was. I mean, it, it was a lot of very basic editing, and yeah. I mean, it was. Lear- I was learning, right? I mean, absolutely. But, but the thing that was really neat, actually, was that I would go out with with my partner, uh, Carrick Benjamin. And we'd go and, and document something and then come back to the, the office, do some editing. And then there was a telecom building next door to us. So then we'd go over oh, wow. and drop a DVD. And then when I got home, I lived with a family for two years. They would be watching, you know, the whole, whole there was one channel <laughs> was devoted to, to playing the stuff that we were creating. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of amazing to like be making content and then get to watch people kind of consuming it. And that, wow. I mean, I guess you know people are consuming content because you can look at clicks on like Vimeo or YouTube or whatever, but there was something very tactile and like gratifying about getting to to see that in a more analog way. I think calling what I was doing documentary filmmaking is is really generous. It was (laughs) was a lot of like long takes and, uh, you know, but 
but yeah, I think that was, and I was doing a lot of still photography, still photography at the time as well. Yeah. Um, but the, the seeds are being sown here for, for your documentary sown. filmmaking and certainly for Island Soldier. Absolutely. And I mean, the seeds are being sown in a couple of ways. I mean, they're, they're being sown in the fact that I'm like learning how to use a video camera, learning how to edit, learning, uh, you know, the basics of, of filmmaking. But in the context of Island Soldier, maybe more importantly, I'm becoming embedded in this community that the film is going to be. That's right. Set. So then when I, I come back a few years later with the camera, there was an openness to me because I had when you, if you're a Peace Corps volunteer in Micronesia, or I guess I should say specifically Koshrai, the island I was on, when you arrive, you're given uh, like a different name that you're going to be known on. Right, right. Known by. So, you know, for two years, I was sort of trucking around this island doing these these, these little videos, but everyone knew me as Palakne. That was like my. <laughs> and so And so when I showed back up, you know, a couple of years later with a camera, it, it wasn't just. You know, a lot of people didn't even know my my English name at the Amazing. time. I don't think. Right, right. Yeah, it was like Palakne, the you know camera guy who was like back to do more. No, I love it. I love it. Koshan family are so close. So when somebody left, it's hard. And living for military, it's even harder. No place like home. Everyone will miss their own place. I'll miss this place. Island Soldier is a feature-length documentary that follows Micronesian citizens who enlist in the U.S. military. And Micronesia has become known as a recruiter's paradise um, post 9-11, as it became harder and harder to find recruits um, in the continental United States, recruiters found that they could kind of go fly into the islands in Micronesia. And I mean, this is also true of other Pacific, overall Pacific islands are overrepresented highly, like American Samoa. But, but the film focuses on a few families from the island of Koshrai who are feeling in different ways the impacts of hey nathan i'm not I'm, lost oh there you are okay we lost you there for a seconds but, but you're back now yeah how, how about hello hello nathan can you hear me yeah hey chris hey Am I coming through yeah, 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 yeah you're coming that. through well. So that uh, maybe we'll just proceed in this fashion. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. It's actually quite appropriate given uh, given the the, <laughs> the the various communication uh, issues that uh, that you actually have in Island Soldier. I, th- I think it's I love that moment actually when when the father is talking to his son, who's who of course is um, is overseas and and I believe it was in Afghanistan, and uh, and you know the phone just keeps you know. The, the Skype conversation keeps cutting out, and, and I know that frustration um, working overseas yep. when that happens, and, and I love that you captured that little mm-hmm. moment. So we're just experiencing that a little bit ourselves here. So so welcome back. <laughs> Glad to have you on the phone. <laughs> Thanks. Good to be back. Something I wanted to point out, Nathan, that I think is kind of critical here to kind of understanding the understanding you as, as a person and, and as a filmmaker, and then really Island Soldier itself, is that 
I really, and especially given sort of the background that you've given us here already, I really see a confluence in, in a few things here with, with your, say, your family's military background, um, what you were doing in Micronesia with the Peace Corps, and then sort of working in the Peace Corps as, as, and learning to be a filmmaker, all of these started to come together in this story that clearly you came across about, you know, the, the, the mass recruitment that, that Americans were doing um, on the islands. And, and, and I find that fascinating. I mean, obviously, this story spoke to you on a number of levels, right? No, absolutely. Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're right on. That is kind of how it's happened. I think people, you know, live their lives differently. And the way I live my life is sort of, you know, less, less premeditated and less planned than, than other people I know, mm. uh, for better or worse. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, that, that experience, I mean, look, I, I was talking to, a, a veteran yesterday who, an American veteran who yeah. was in, in the army and was injured in Afghanistan. We were having lunch and he was kind of talking about how he, his job he works with films, both in sort of like a, a larger Hollywood context, but also film, documentary filmmakers around representation of veterans. And one thing he brought up was uh, the, the idea that he doesn't want to be treated, that they, there shouldn't be special treatment for veterans, that the veterans should be, because that creates this isolation hmm. um, when they're divorced from society or kind of like treated as something different than everyone else or treated as broken. Mm-hmm. But we were talking about the experience of being a veteran and he was kind of saying that that as a Peace Corps volunteer coming back I would have a clearer uh, understanding of what that experience is like coming back from war and and I've had the thought before it was interesting that he articulated it yeah that clearly I mean I, it's in my mind you know coming back from war is like what what you're exposed to there feels I haven't you know been in the military but that feels like a yeah. level above Peace Corps it's, it's a cultural immersion. It feels like military service is a cultural plus this whole other level of, of war and kind of what that means. Right, right. Um, but, but I think the idea of going away and then sort of trying to reacclimate sort of was, a, was an idea I was just thinking about yesterday that as, as a returning Peace Corps volunteer, I mean, <laughs> anyone who's done that experience, it's a, it's, it's a challenge. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, I think you're, you're spot on. I I it's I can I can very much relate to what what you're saying there Nathan and 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 that's and I think you're kind of maybe downplaying uh what what sort of the reimmersion into for instance I feel like maybe you're downplaying the reimmersion into say say American culture when you came back um after your experience in a in a place like Micronesia and 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 maybe I'm wrong about that but 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 for myself I remember the first time I spent, other than teaching English in South Korea, it would be years later before I, I really um, uh, got into doc filmmaking. Doc filmmaking, and it was through a, a project that that uh, I had been hired on to, where we 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 essentially spent six months um, in Cambodia with villagers who were who were digging up old mortars and bombs and rockets left over from thirty years of civil conflict. You know, the illegal uh, bombing during the during the Vietnam War, and and they were taking up these bombs and and UXO, and and they were essentially by hand, you know, trying to take apart the the, the metal and, and the TNT and and sell onto the scrap trade, and 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 being around this for for six months, you know, obviously that would that would change anyone, um, 
But I remember distinctly coming back to the U.S. after having that experience where this was back in this was back in 2004. At the time, Cambodia had the highest per capita amputee rate in the world. It has since been surpassed, I believe, by Afghanistan. Um, and I remember, you know, I'll never forget coming back into the U.S., the culture shock that I had coming back felt greater than what I experienced going to Cambodia in the first place. Now, now, mind you, there's a lot going on there, and, and you may have experienced this yourself. There's a lot going on there, too, um, sort of with the history of, 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 of the U.S. and intervention in, in Southeast Asia. And so I, I had sort of my feelings about what, what had happened there um, and certainly, you know, driven by experiences working a, as a doc filmmaker there and then coming back. And, and I remember when I was then hired on to edit the film, I was grateful for having four or five, six months where I could just, I like to think of it as like hide out in the basement of the director's house and just and just continue sort of immersing myself in Cambodian culture and seeing you know re going through the footage and, and and not having to almost almost like avoiding getting reimmersing back in, in into American life and 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 I wonder if you experienced a bit of that yourself um, with your Peace Corps experience and then maybe coming back to the U.S. No, I mean absolutely that, that parallels my experience pretty pretty clearly. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, so the. The story, the, the my interest in the story was sort of sparked um, around the military service of Micronesians because I, I was, in addition to this sort of main gig that I had doing historic preservation, I was also running an art center uh, for young people on the island who were interested in drawing and painting. And that right. also kind of, that, that was also a great project for me and part of the reason my service was so satisfying. But one of the young men uh, named Yasuo had had enlisted in the army and came back kind of a few months later and it was really transformed. And then I'd been out of the, the Peace Corps and yeah, I was having, I was really struggling to kind of wrap my head around, you know, one of the things that, that was really empowering about being in the Peace Corps was that, that once the community saw that you wanted to do things, I, I had sort of, everyone was like coming to me with projects, with grants, with, I felt very good about what I was doing. I felt, you know, I felt like I was, you know, making a difference in this community and right, right. doing this, these like large, large scale art projects. And so everyone on the island kind of knew about me and what we were doing. And it was just a very, I mean, there, there was something like ego, egoistic and kind of, hmm. you know, but, but I, I felt appreciated in a way. I, maybe I never truly felt before. Uh, and maybe, maybe that's, that's also important. part of yeah. why, why, why I ended up sort of spending all this time making the film because I had a real connection with the community. But, but yeah, in this period where I was in the doldrums of kind of, getting back to America and realizing I, I was thinking about, I was going through this hard transition back to America. And then I was thinking about these people who were going like how much harder their transition or what that transition must be to, to go from, from the Island oh, man. to war. Oh, so the Island, each Island something. Any of my listeners out there who are thinking of, of, of doing any sort of doc film work that maybe deals with, in this case, we'll, we'll use U.S. military as an example. I'd love to hear how, how did you go about getting access to the U.S. military? How did you get access to Fort Benning, Georgia? How did you get access to Colorado? How did you get yourself embedded in Afghanistan? What is a process that you can share with us on how that happens? 
Absolutely. So I can only share my experience, which is like, of course, of course. Project. Yeah. But, but my steps were developing relationships with the subjects who were going to deploy yeah. so that, that they're, they know who they knew I was, they were on board with the project. They, you know, we had, we had filmed in some, some situations where I didn't need military service. And so they were already comfortable with that. Okay. And then going to the military through the official channels, yep. um, which, which meant, you know, in my case, writing a lot of emails that didn't get responded to because people were really busy <laughs> and then managing to, to sort of schedule a meeting, an in-person meeting with a, a PR yep. officer in Fort Carson, Colorado, and showing up with a laptop with my trailer queued up yep. and, you know, giving them a little context of, uh, of the film and showing them the trailer. And I think, I think one advantage for this project was Micronesia is beautiful and they, you know, you, you show people who are stationed in, you know, rural Colorado, some beautiful, like, you know, provocative footage in the islands and, and the story that they, they didn't, you know, I, I think at that moment they were, they were really interested in the story and they were uh. kind of like, you know, I would say there's, there's different levels of, of information around the service of Pacific Islanders and Micronesians in the military, at least in the context of this meeting, the people I was talking to and as the story kind of was, was shared with the people from the media relations office that needed to okay me that there was an interest and there was a, a genuine kind of curiosity about, about the story, about That's why great. these people were in, choosing to enlist. So, so essentially I, I shared my materials, a synopsis, a trailer, and that was passed around along to like the media office that's located in Wilshire on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. At this point, do you have a sense that whether or not you'll be allowed to do this? Are you really truly awaiting for sort of official word of an okay? Or do you just assume that, you know what, I'm going to be able to do this. I just need to, you know, I don't know. Somebody has to dot some I's and some T's, but I'll be going for sure. Or were you kind of waiting on sort of needles and pins on whether you'd be able to go? No, I mean, it was an extremely long shot that I was, I was allowed to go. Wow. Um, and I think, and we had a conversation about it and the, the officer I was talking to was kind of transparent about it. He's like, you know, at this point I had gotten funding from Pacific Islanders and Communications, which has been a, a funder of the film. And I had gotten some money from a small humanities councils in Guam, but, but the film was, the film still uh, has always been a very, you know, bare bones project. And when I was talking to the officer, he was saying, you know, in general, they don't okay films that, that don't have like basically they want to make sure that the film any film that they they're going to spend time and energy helping come to fruition yeah. they want to make sure, know that that's going to be a thing it's going to be on tv it's yeah. going to have all this stuff kind of lined up I, ideally like a major studio or you know some kind of personality you know anthony bourdain or someone like right. that where they're like all right this is like a real thing and yeah. I, I think my you know because because of the funding through pacific islands Islanders in Communications, a broad, a TV broadcast was, was something that I could point to as a, you know, something that was going to happen down the line. Although I believe I had to present my budget and, you know, the, the amount I'd raised. And I, I think they, you know, were rightfully pretty skeptical that I was going to be able to pull it off, you know, finish the film on what, what, what had been raised. And so I, I had this sort of frank conversation. The guy was like, you know, we would, we would turn you down. Like generally I would turn you down because you're not, you don't kind of have things lined up the way we would want you to. And yeah. we're at this point, we're not, we're not okay in a lot of people, but I'm genuinely, we're genuinely interested in this project. And so, uh, Amazing. you know, we're going to, we're going to help push this through for you. But, but, but I would say the last thing I would say was in this whole process, there was a point where they called the soldier, they called Gil Frank and they're like, you know, I wasn't on the call obviously, but, oh. but, 
but but they were like, you want to do this? Do you are you okay with this guy? Do you know this guy? Like, who, who is this? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, they gave him some kind of agency around how this was going to happen, and because of the relationship that existed, because you know he he knew about my community work right. in, in the islands, and and I had sort of put in some time with him. Yeah. You know that that could have been the breaking point if he had said, no, I I don't want to have this camera guy getting in my way in Afghanistan of course. to make my life harder. That that would have been the end of it right there. I absolutely love there's like a good 10 15 minute segment um, maybe it's maybe it's shorter longer than that but but I remember there's some length where you're just showing visuals and you're using radio chatter as your storytelling device and that was just, yeah. that was the best man I, I have to commend you on that I I, I loved it. It, it it sent chills down my spine um, it, it, it was yeah it was great uh, how did you get access and in a technical sort of way how did you record that radio chatter how did that work and did you have to get clearance for any of that so basically I was on a military base called Fob the Sob um, outside of Kandahar mm-hmm, right and and the, the guys I was with were doing route clearance um, so that means going out looking for IDs every IDs, day which I right. guess would as, as someone who's worked on uh, disarming explosives might might be something that yeah oh yeah <laughs> that certainly spoke to me <laughs> yeah so you know it was interesting i you know with the, the unit that i was with was going out on long patrols yeah um you know sometimes we'd go out for 16 18 hours like a sometimes film shoot leave at midnight <laughs> like a commercial film like shoot. a film shoot <laughs> yeah and you know it was interesting i think when i showed up they were there was a certain level of acceptance of me as the guy who was like following their Micronesian soldiers around, yeah, you know? right, right. And I think after I, after I I had been willing to go out on these missions and was eager to go out on these missions, you know, I think they had been there long enough that they were they were bored when they were. There was a lot of boredom when there wasn't tension and fear. <laughs> yeah. I, like I would say in my experience there, which you know is, is specific to that experience, but it was like. There were days where nothing would happen and you just sit around the base and like talk story and it was incredibly boring sometimes. Um, and I think I became, I was just someone new um, and the soldiers were actually pretty, <laughs> as I was saying, a couple of them were saying that, that often journalists would come, come out but not want to not wanna go out on mission, not want to, even though nothing happened when I was there, it was pretty dangerous. They had been, right before I got there, someone had got his, had both of his legs blown off by an IED and so they weren't really getting out of the the vehicles at that point um yeah. but most of the soldiers in that unit that i was with um had been either in a vehicle that had been blown up or had been you know next to a vehicle that had been blown up and Oof. i think it's another conversation but yeah. but at any rate so I, I ended up going out on these long long patrols and the soldiers you know started talking to me on the headphones and like looping me into the conversation i became a part of the the mission to some degree um mm, and we're kind of like i see right right and that became, you know, the the content I was able 
to get and everyone knew I was filming and recording. So that was, you know, I was, that was, that was part of the deal. As we sort of come to a close here with our conversation, I'd love to hear now what, what what's happening with Island Soldier. I know that it just had its festival premiere, right? And I know it's going to be playing Doc NYC. Um, Hot Docs is involved, Full Frames involved. What's your festival strategy? And then after that, how do you approach distribution? Sure. I mean, so so right now we are in Hawaii at the Hawaii International Film Festival and just had two incredible screenings. Um, oh, fantastic. We've actually, this is, so this is our... This is our Hawaii premiere. We've actually been screening. We're we've been screening for about six months, so we're pretty, you know, not at the not at the beginning of our, our festival, but we've had some great okay. screenings at Hot Doc and Full Frame yeah. and a bunch of other uh, festivals. But I would say these Hawaii festivals have been incredible because the Micronesian community has really turned out in force. Oh um, man, that's got to be so lovely for so, you. Yeah, as a filmmaker, I mean, these screenings. I was so touched. Um, the first screening, you know, everyone, it's just like these beats are hitting so hard mm. and everyone is just like laughing at the right moment mm, and mm, mm. groaning at the right moment. It's <laughs> so, so great. And then everyone's coming up afterwards and, you know, it's this, this documentary like in life is, uh, as you know, is like not a simple, easy thing. And I was talking to Brian, the, uh, the producer, editor right. on the film, yesterday about it it's like this reward of getting to see your film really appreciated that's such a big part of of being a filmmaker a documentary filmmaker doing something around sort of social justice to, to kind of be privileged enough to see it seen and appreciated and know that it could have some sort of impact you know it's not really in the film but the micronesians are are also an extremely stigmatized community in hawaii mm. um as like a, a new the newest kind of immigrant group to come here there's they're just really facing a lot of challenges. So it, it oh. also feels, it feels great to kind of present some kind of counter narrative to the way they're being I'll represented bet, in the media, which is pretty negative. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm kind of feeling really good about these, these screenings that have been happening and yeah. gearing up for doc NYC. Like you said, that's going to be a screening on veterans day in New York yes. city, sort of our hometown. So I think that'll be a big one for us. And then, yeah, going to San Diego and Philadelphia and just have a bunch of, of other screenings that we're going to be jumping to. And also, you know, we're having some conversations with people from the government about doing some screenings in, uh, in Washington, D.C., which I think will be really great to have the film screened. I wondered if that's something that you were hoping to do. You know, it feels like the story is an unknown story, and this is a population that, that hasn't had their voices heard very often. And it'll be really interesting to see how people in the government who are sort of creating crafting policy around the island how the film can can be a part of the conversation about the future of these islands and the relationship with the u.s as u.s funding continues to draw down and the islands face this cliff edge when u.s funding is slated to, to cut off you know it's it's a hard moment for for these countries and i think you know hopefully as i said the film can can be a part of the conversation so Nathan, man, this has just been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to do it, and thanks for staying with us in terms of the uh, these sort of technical difficulties we had earlier. But like I said, it's uh, totally appropriate to a lot of our conversation and, and certainly to your film. And um, uh, I'm eager to see what happens with Island Soldier and certainly um, where things go for you in, in the future, Nathan. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. This has been really lovely. I, I really appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, good talk for a <laughs> for a lot longer, but I, I really appreciate uh, really appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to the podcast. 
Me too, man. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it, and you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.